My name is Sophie Smith. I am the co-founder and CEO of NABTA Health. Um, we offer personalized healthcare to women in emerging markets using a new model of hybrid healthcare. And Femtech to me is the combination of digital health technologies and traditional healthcare to improve health outcomes in women. Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast, where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with femtech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto, and in today's episode, I interview Sophie Smith, co-founder and CEO of NAPTA Health. NAPTA Health is a hybrid healthcare company for women headquartered in the United Arab Emirates. They offer discreet, personalized, and helpful healthcare, which cuts the time taken to identify and manage health issues that could be preventing women from living a healthy and happy life. Something interesting about NAPTA Health is that they are targeting women in emerging markets like North Africa, the Middle East, and South Asia. This episode is a conversation about women's healthcare in these markets. What are the issues, where are the strengths, and where are the opportunities? Enjoy. Hey, Sophie. Welcome to the show. Hi, Brittany. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I am really excited to have you on the show. Um, you know, this is going to be a topic we actually haven't covered yet uh, after a, over 100 episodes, which is crazy, which yeah. is uh, emerging markets. Um, and so let's start off with your background. Tell our listeners, you know, where are you from? What did you study? You know, what's your career? And, uh, and tell us a little bit about if you're living in an emerging market right now, um, you know, what's inspired you? Tell us just a little bit of your personal story. Okay. Um, so I actually read history at Cambridge. Um, I don't have a medical background. I have two, two parents who are doctors. Um, my father until recently was the national clinical director of diagnostics for the NHS and ran one of the NHS's um, first big digitalization programs called PAX to bring all of its imaging online. So I think I've always had a very deeply rooted interest in diagnostics as a result. Um, but I read history and then I worked as a technology consultant for four years for Accenture. I left in 2014 to found my first company, which was a health tech consultancy based out of the UK. Um, I then set up a doctor finding appointment booking platform in Pakistan um, with a guy um, of Pakistani origin who I met in London. Um, that platform was called Mazindagi. Um, and then I went from there to setting up a software development company, primarily focused again on healthcare technologies set up a plastic recycling company in Sierra Leone that does waste plastics to bricks, tiles, and roads, um, bounced quite quickly from company to company. Um, both the doctor finding um, appointment booking platform and the plastic recycling company is still going strong under my business partners. But um, none of these was the company for me. And then I moved to Dubai with my husband um, in September, 2016. I was um, new married and pregnant. And I went to speak at a conference that a friend of mine had organized in Kuwait on diabetes. 
and we didn't discuss diabetes at all. Instead, we exclusively spoke about the fact that I was pregnant. And about a month later, he pinged me with a whole load of stats on women's healthcare in the Middle East and North Africa and said, do you want to do something in women's healthcare together? So I said, yes, sure. Give me a few months to hand over my existing business interests and have this baby. Um, and then my son was late. So we actually got started on NAPTA on the 21st of March, 2017, which as it happens is Mother's Day here in the UAE. Um, so that's how it came into being. Wow. And so you moved to Dubai because your husband had a job there? I did. He, um, he's a commercial litigator working with one of the largest, if not the largest Arab law firm here. Um, so yes, as is the case with many women here, um, I moved with my husband's job. Got it. And so during your pregnancy, did you have an expectation of what healthcare in the Middle East for maternal health would look like? And did it match your expectation? Um, so I actually had just started seeing um, doctors on the NHS before I moved out. And we were a little bit back and forth in the first six months. Um, my husband initially had a temporary three month contract. So we back and I, I had Oliver in the UK. Um, and then I had my second child, Eleanor, here in the UAE. Um, the third baby will also be born here in the UAE. And um, Ellen, my experience with Eleanor was definitely not what I was expecting. Um, if you know anything about the NHS in the UK, you'll know that it's a, it's a, it's a public healthcare system, government funded, and it's about as non-commercial as healthcare can get. The standard of healthcare is generally very high, um, but you know the um, practitioners there will only recommend to you the things that you need. Um, whereas in the Middle East, um, depending on the country, uh, the UAE, for example, is a predominantly private market and it's highly commercialized. Got it. And so, would what do you define as an emerging market? Um, I would say an emerging market is, in general, a lower or middle income country. Um, so the Middle East, Africa and South Asia, which is our target market, it's about 645 million women um, between the ages of 18 and 58. It's actually very diverse. Um, you've got places in the GCC like Qatar um, and Saudi Arabia, which has have some of the highest GDP per capita. So some of the wealthiest people in the world. And then you've got places like Yemen, where half of the population is starving, you know, through sub-Saharan Africa, a lot of people um, taking home less than a dollar per day, living below the poverty line. Um, so the region as a whole is very diverse, but I think, you know, it's, it's very nascent from a healthcare ecosystems perspective. Most of the countries here are young and a lot of them don't have established infrastructures. And so they're building healthcare systems that are almost entirely technology enabled from start to finish. They don't have a lot of the legacy issues that healthcare systems in other parts of the world have I think some of the, there, there are some countries in, in the Middle East that would classify more as emerging market than others. But um, in terms of being a nascent and sort of untapped market opportunity, emerging applies to the whole region. And so emerging markets uh, having lack of infrastructure existing already, how does that affect women's health specifically? Oh, in a multitude of different ways. Um, to give you some so there, there are a few things. Firstly, um, there are significant taboos 
um, associated with many aspects of women's healthcare here, um, particularly anything, any hereditary conditions, um, anything relating to fertility. So a lot of women are very hesitant to uh, talk about their health, um, to seek advice and assistance, and as a result, um, healthcare outcomes are quite significantly impacted. Um, just to give you some stats, 80% um, of breast cancers in the MENA region are diagnosed at stage four, which has a 27% five-year survival rate versus stage one or two, which are 99%. 40% um, of women don't attend a single antenatal appointment, which obviously greatly increases their risk of um, developing gestational diabetes or suffering preterm birth or preeclampsia. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, there are, there are many, many stats. Um, there's still, from a process perspective, a little bit of a, a lag from a development point of view. Um, so, for example, um, postpartum care isn't provided as standard here in the UAE, which means that postpartum depression rates are 56% among women and 30% among men, so pretty high. Um, yeah, just to give you some examples. Wow. Yeah, so um, <laughs> is are they not going to, uh, you know, uh, prenatal visits or getting their, you know, annual breast exam because those things are not available or is it like an awareness campaign issue or what do you think is the the cause of this because in the emerged markets if you will we know about it right and so like what what is the barrier in emerging markets for these types of things so again it depends where you are if you're based here in the UAE where there's an, an overabundance of healthcare facilities three and a half thousand hospitals and clinics for a population of 11 million people, which is high. Um, it's not about a lack of access or affordability even necessarily because most um, kind of essential services are covered by insurance. Um, things like mammograms, for example, would be. It's more about, um, it's more about a lack of education and, a, and, and this prevalence of what's termed a, a culture of shame. So, you know, the, no one wants to really talk about or engage with the concept of cancer. Um, cancer in Arabic translates into something that roughly means the terrible cancer. So even the words themselves have very negative connotations. Um, the word menopause in Arabic roughly translates into the age of despair. Um, yeah. So, yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of negative connotations, and I think it's more about awareness. Um, and education and encouragement and allowing women to do things in a way that they feel really comfortable about it. So with privacy, with autonomy, with convenience in as affordable and accessible way as possible. Then you go to places like Kenya, where you have, um, you know, women living in remote villages and they maybe, if they have a mobile phone, it's an, it's an analog phone. Perhaps there's only one phone to the household or even one phone to the village. Um, it's a five kilometer walk to the nearest healthcare facility. There, it's much more about access um, than anything else. Mm -hmm. And so um, what do you think the solution is? Is it technologies coming out of the US or the you know, EU going into emerging markets and helping? Is it through like nonprofit work or is it through, you know, do you think that you know, it has to come from within those countries in those regions. Uh, how do we how do we help them, these women? 
Um, well, I obviously am a, am a proponent of building things from the ground up within the countries themselves, which is what we've done with NAVTA. You know, we're very proudly by and for the Middle East, Africa and South Asia. Um, every single member of our team is either living in or was brought up in or is from the, from the region. Um, and, you know, we're in 11 countries in eight different time zones. Very, very diverse. The, the region is incredibly diverse, you know, even in terms of the Arabic spoken, for example, across the Middle East and North Africa, the Haliji dialects in the, in the GCC, so in the Gulf Corporation Council countries, um, places like Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, is very different to the Arabic spoken in the Levant, so in Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, which is different again to Egyptian Arabic, which is entirely different to North African Arabic, which is predominantly Berber. Um, so there are so many cultural, very beautiful cultural nuances here. Um, you only really, you can only really build things that are appropriate if, if you're building from the ground up. For example, um, take the uh, fertility monitor that we've integrated with our platform, which is manufactured by Fertility Focus in the UK. Um, it's a vaginal fertility monitor. Um, in a lot of countries here, and especially in more conservative countries like Saudi Arabia, it's absolutely forbidden to insert anything into your vagina before marriage. Um, and so for women who wanted to learn about their fertility, um, and this is including things like tampons, um, wanted to learn about their fertility, um, maybe in anticipation of trying to conceive um, early on in marriage, they wouldn't be able to use a device like, um, like this fertility monitor. They'd have to use a skin-based sensor or other kind of tracking mechanism. Um, and the extent, to which, the extent to which it is not possible for women in Saudi Arabia to even consider um, using a device like this, how much of an insult it would be to suggest that a woman, an unmarried woman uses a device like this is something you can only really get to grips with when you're sat working side by side with women from the region on a daily basis. Um, I mean, there, there are many, many, there are many, many different examples. I think this is a, this is a region that is very family centric. And again, you can see that, um, for example, in the, um, in the statistics related to the IVF market. So obviously the, the MENA region is, is a tiny percentage of the global population, so the Middle East and North Africa, but it accounts for a tenth of the IVF market because having families here is everything. The entire society is structured around family. Um, about, I think in the UAE, 98% of businesses are family owned or run. Um, so, you know, your inability to start a family is really a problem here. And again, until you live in the region and, and work in the region, you don't appreciate how family centric everybody is and how important this really is. Um, so while I think there will always be a degree of um, imitation and um, utilization of technologies and processes and best practices that exist outside of the region, the only way that you're ever going to effectively build things that women actually want to need here is by building them in the region from the ground up. In how would you create a business model when it has such a diverse GDP in that area, right? You're talking about people who have a ton of money, and then you're talking about women in Kenya villages, right? And so how does a startup, you know, structure that business model? 
think the answer is in a very systematic way, you know, trying to tackle one kind of pay or payee relationship at a time. So in the UAE, the, um, the payor is the insurance provider. So all, all the individual for things that aren't covered by insurance, um, or if you're on a, a worse form of insurance where you've got a high percentage of copay or you're, 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 you know, you're paying and claiming. Um, so you have to structure things so that in, insurance providers are incentivized to cover what you offer in place of or as well as what the existing healthcare ecosystem already offers. And you do that basically by proving that you can reduce the costs mm -hmm. um, in terms of the services that you deliver. Then you have a market like Saudi Arabia, which is a predominantly um, public market. It's about 80% government, 18% private, and then maybe 2% um, private institutions. So um, the army, for example, has its own healthcare. Um, some companies like Aramco, uh, the big Saudi oil oil and gas firm have um, their own healthcare, and so rather than um, you know building something where you are incentivizing insurance providers to cover what you offer, you're building something that's incentivizing the government to cover what you offer. So working with the local accountable care organisations to demonstrate that you can materially improve population health and reduce the cost of providing essential healthcare to local populations. So um, you deal with that there. And then the question of accessibility and affordability um, is, is another one entirely there. You're trying to shift the, the, the burden of, of paying for everything away from the consumer entirely and or working with some of the existing mechanisms to make it as affordable as possible. So for example, we're in discussions at the moment with an, an international telecoms company um, to use one of their existing mobile-based payment systems to support very small subscription-based transactions for um, particular elements of our first clinical pathways or our marketplace of products and services. Um, and we're adapting everything that we currently have within our app and our, and our kind of AI powered platform to be accessible via SMS and via, you know, one of the kind of two or three apps that women with smartphones might have on their phones. So things like Facebook Messenger, Facebook Lite, WhatsApp, et cetera. Mm -hmm. This is really fascinating stuff. Um, another thing that, you know, I personally work on a lot is helping founders fundraise. And so investors are always looking for, you know, multi-billion dollar markets to enter into. And they also are looking usually for companies to be targeting the U.S. market because that's what they know. And so have you tried to fundraise for NAPTA and um, what's your experience been like with investors and do you have any advice for maybe anyone else who's working in an emerging market trying to get funding? So I think the perception of emerging markets is, is a couple of things that a perception of the US market might not be. Firstly, they're not established. They're seen as a little bit, and this is, this is a, an, an outside perception, they're seen as a little bit more unstable. They're seen as very diverse. So it would be difficult, you know, in the US, in theory, at least, if you build something, it can immediately be available to a, 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 a you know, several hundred million population of predominantly English-speaking individuals. Although I think there was a stat recently that showed that by 20, 2040, 2050, um, Spanish would be the most widely spoken language in the US. Um, Anyway, I digress. The, uh, so I think the perception of emerging markets is that they're a little bit bitty and they're quite challenging. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that potentially the sort of the established infrastructure isn't there necessarily to support a rapid rollout. Um, but the thing is, with emerging markets, you have a rapidly growing population, very useful. Some countries have 70% under 25 wow. in emerging markets. Um, the next billion people are coming out of Africa. So you have a rapidly growing market, very useful, very innovative, very technical technology savvy, um, used to change at a rapid pace um, that are still today mostly underserved by the existing healthcare system. So if women were excluded from clinical trials until 1994, meaning today women are still 50 to 75% more likely to suffer adverse reactions to drugs, the vast majority of our populations are still excluded from clinical trials. 92% of clinical trials occur in the US and Europe the vast majority of the remaining 8% occur in the Far East. So you have here a population that has, that has got very little infrastructure or less infrastructure than other parts of the world that is not served by clinical trials and clinical research that is growing very fast, that is increasingly technology enabled and connected. I don't think there's a more exciting market to be in. And also, again, wholly untapped from, a, from an intellectual property perspective. Nobody registers patents here. Nothing is protected here. You know, you can, you can, there's an opportunity to establish kind of an intellectual property dominance that when the world wakes up to the fact that this is a broad and interesting market, you know, you already have a few companies who've been building from the ground up from the start that have a very kind of solid foundation and base there. Um, in terms of your question around raising funds, so we were in a discovery phase for 15 months, conceptualizing, conceptualizing our model of hybrid healthcare, deciding how we were going to build out our first clinical pathways to support um, faster timed diagnosis for women with specific underlying health conditions. Um, we then raised a seed round of $500,000. We raised it ticket by ticket over about 18 months. Um, from 10 angel investors in total, um, which was quite an efficient way of managing our operational expenditure. Um, And then when we moved out of R&D, or were on the cusp of moving out of R&D into commercialization phase, we opened a seed plus. We opened that seed plus in late June, 2020. Um, I have since then reached out to 306 funds globally. Um, I have sent teasers to 125. I've had 40 introductory calls, 44 declare no interest, um, 15 declare interest for Series A, and we've whittled down to just under 10 who are really serious about potentially investing in us a lead, a number of co's, and then a number of strategic co-investors. And we're in the the final stages of due diligence now with a number of those companies. Um, We were advised, because of being a women's health technology company, in an emerging market, female-led, female-oriented, still very, very, very much among the minority to cast our net wide, so we did. Um, A lot of things have happened in the ecosystem here in the last year. You know, pre-COVID, most of the VCs in the region predominantly invested into pure SaaS plays, so into e-commerce, marketplaces, logistics, fintech. Um, there were a handful, like two or three specialized health tech funds, and they didn't invest in companies in the region. Only now are we starting to see health tech focused funds emerging and they're raising. So they will be ready to deploy capital probably in the next year or so. 
Um, so we were raising in a challenging year in a nascent market. Um, but I think the tide is turning. You know, people are interested now in investing in health tech here in a way that they never were before. People understand that population health in terms of immunity, in terms of the prevalence of non-communicable disease are really, are really relevant and um, can have pretty significant implications in terms of the likelihood of, of a pandemic to hit you really, really hard or not. Um, so for example, we just saw a, a research institute, the, the Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid um, uh, Institute for Communicable Diseases being set up here, one of the first big research and development institutes in the UAE. There are a number that are following. I think the, the tide is turning um, in favor of health tech companies in emerging markets. And I think there is increasingly a push here towards diversity and inclusion, um, there's a very high percentage actually of um, female-led startups here. In fact, there are more female-led startups in MENA than there are in Silicon Valley. Mm. Um, and yeah, a lot, of, a lot of women in STEM as well. 56% of graduates in the UAE are in STEM, in STEM subjects are women. So um, actually there's a, lot of, um, there's a lot of movement and development in the space. I think the next five to 10 years are gonna be interesting and dynamic in a way that potentially the last five to 10 years were not. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Do you see a rise in femtech companies or do you feel like you're the only one? We are still the only femtech company in the Arab world. Um, now that the UAE has um, uh, started trading with Israel, as have a number of other um, Arab countries, um, Israel, from a from an Arab world perspective, is formally included in the in the MENA region, and obviously there's some really great femtech companies that are coming out of Israel, and there's a lot of R and D that is happening in Israel as well. So, increasingly, there's more dialogue in the femtech space. Um, there are a handful of other femtech companies that we're aware of that operate across the region, but a lot of them aren't actually based here. So, for example, Grace Health which targets some um, parts of sub-Saharan Africa with a, a period and cycle bot is actually the team's based in Sweden, I believe. Um, and there are a few others, but they're not, they're not headquartered in the region. So we're still very much among the minority in terms of women's health technology companies that are based in and working also for the region. Wow. And, you know, a lot of companies start in other continents, but they all call me up saying, oh, we want to come to the U.S. You know, so a lot of European companies say, oh, we want to come to the U.S. Do you anticipate that your company is ever going to leave your, you know, the space you're in? Or is that like home base forever? That's the company. You know, this isn't just your jumping off point. Um, so eventually it will be a jumping off point. But we want to establish ourselves as a, as a company for emerging markets first. So to go throughout the Middle East, Africa and South Asia, and then maybe at the point at which we IPO, um, we will expand to countries in Europe, the US, um, possibly going to China. I get requests every single week um, from um, companies, individuals in China, um, there, there are a lot of fertility issues, 300% um, increase in miscarriages, in some of the major, very um, industrialized cities in China in the past five or so years. Um, so there's a lot of interest from other markets, but uh, we see there's a lot of potential here and there's a lot of work to do here. Uh, I think we would have R&D 
um, R&D headquarters. We already have one in the UK. Um, we will likely in the next 18 to 24 months set up one in the US. But in terms of operational entities, we will predominantly be based here. Cool. And what, what was like a barrier that you faced building NAP to help that you didn't expect? Um, I think I'm, I think I'm always a little bit surprised or <laughs> to be reminded that I'm a woman and that that means something other than the, the, the fact itself. Yeah. Um, the, this is still in many ways, although it's a very family oriented society um, and women are held in very high esteem. In terms of the nuts and bolts of business and trade, it's still quite male dominated. Mm -hmm. um, and the, yeah, I mean, it, it varies from, from country to country within the region, but there have definitely been times when I have made significantly less headway than I'd like. And I, although I have tried to pin it on reasons other than the fact that I'm a woman, have eventually been unable to do so. Um, there have been times where I haven't helped myself either. You know, I have had investor meetings with very conservative, um, conservatively dressed, beautifully dressed actually, um, local Emiratis, and I've had the baby with me and I have whipped her out to breastfeed under a cover and have had the entire meeting with a, with a breastfeeding baby. That's happened on many, many occasions. Um, I've rocked up at competitions with babies in slings. Um, I was actually with Eleanor. I, I did a panel discussion at the Amazon Web Services Conference when I was already in labor with her, um, not an act of labor, but a day or so before she came. And then I had my first, um, my first panel discussion with the Dubai Business Women's Council um, four days after she was born. And we placed second in an AI competition, $125,000 when she was 10 days old. And I think um, people expect you when you are, and I don't think this is unique to the region, you know, when you're pregnant or have small children, to behave in certain ways still, you know, maybe to slow down, take time off, um, not have your small children hanging off you. Uh, at all times and subverting those expectations has has been a, a necessary part of the course but I think something that I wasn't expecting to get quite so many questions about. Wow you are a superwoman by the way <laughs> like that sounds um such dedication to your work um and also like just I'm so impressed um what do you think about, this is my last question, then I'd love to hear any like last thoughts from you, but um, you know, one of the barriers for femtech companies in the US is that a lot of women have never bought a solution for their menopause symptoms, right? Or they, um, everyone knows about all these like fertility tests or IVF, but like once the woman has the baby, you know, like what are um, things that are even available to her? And so the femtech founders in the US and the EU have to bear the burden of like educating women like about their problem and then encouraging them to pay for this solution because they deserve it and they don't need to suffer. Do you think that that barrier is even higher in these emerging markets, um, North Africa, you know, Middle East, where women, feel um, like 
even less educated about their own bodies and then less like inclined to spend the money, the little money they might have on themselves? Um, I definitely think the the whole education and why is this important for you and why should you be taking, making a proactive decision to engage with your diet and lifestyle is a barrier. It's actually why um, we've pinpointed several kind of key moments in a woman's life to engage with her on the topic. And I think it's why over 50% of femtech companies focus on fertility because the first time a woman really becomes an expert in her own health is when she falls pregnant or when she doesn't. Yeah. You know, if you want to provide people with a lot of information about their cycle health, how it's a very good indicator, probably the best indicator for a woman of her overall health, how her hormonal or her hormone levels are related to potentially metabolic disorders, to her gut microbiome, to diet and lifestyle decisions in general, get her when she's trying to have a baby and she really wants to do something about it. Probably the other critical point is when women get a cancer diagnosis in terms of lifestyle change. Mm-hmm. But um, the yeah, I think that's it's a it's a big barrier here. It's actually one of the reasons why we changed our offering a little bit, or we we evolved it um, a, a, even sort of like four to six weeks ago. Um, previously, we had been focusing exclusively on building clinical pathways that could, in the context of a specific goal, help a woman understand whether she had an underlying health condition. So you're trying to fall pregnant, for example, um, you're unable to fall pregnant, uh, our little AI powered assistant pops up and basically does the, the three steps that a doctor would do to get you from symptoms diagnosis. So triaging, monitoring and testing, and we'll walk you through doing those things. And so we spent a long time developing this quite elegant set of clinical pathways, um, but we're coming up against several things. One of them being precisely this you know how do you how do you teach women that what you're offering is really better you know how do you build that trust how do you make them aware that they need it particularly somewhere here where potentially the barriers to entry from a cost perspective are lower than they would be in in other parts of the region where IVF ICSI traditional assisted reproductive technologies wouldn't be affordable and so we've added a we've added a marketplace of products and services um, to support women either post-diagnosis or in the context of a specific health goal. And the idea is that we make available to women in a very cost-effective way. So we partner with a local buy now, pay later platform to bring um, payment and installments to the region for the first time. Uh, we've taken things that women would consider paying for out of pocket anyway and made them more affordable and contextualized them and provided a whole kind of education layer around them so that, you know, a, a woman, for example, can, can see how, um, you know, if she's just had a cancer diagnosis, moving from traditional to clean skincare might be a good option for her and will allow her to still effectively manage her manage her skin and access some form of self-care during her chemotherapy whether it's um, helping women who are pregnant for the first time um, access prenatal courses um, postpartum meal plans so that they are giving their baby and their baby's gut microbiome the best possible chance of development by keeping themselves healthy and having a, a balanced and, and varied diet so we actually we changed our offering it to, to I guess, give us multiple opportunities to tag on to the consumer spending decisions that women would make anyway, like little kind of 
tools, tips, um, and uh, opportunities for education. In some countries, is there a barrier of like needing their husband's approval to like get this kind of um, resources? So it's an interesting question. Um, I think that manifests that there are various um, manifestations of preference, I guess, here, for example, um, a lot of um, payments for online purchases are made using cash on delivery because women don't feel comfortable giving their name, their phone number, their bank account details, men and women, because it makes them that little bit more traceable. Um, so a lot of a lot of uh, online transactions are supported by cash on delivery, which is a very unique hmm. model of payment or it's unique to the region. Um, until 2019, women in Saudi Arabia couldn't decide how they wanted to give birth. So if your doctor or your guardian said you're having a C-section, you'd have a C-section. If, um, if one of the potential outcomes, you know, there was a complication and the doctor put forward to the question, are you comfortable with us proceeding with a hysterectomy? You didn't get to make that decision for yourself. That was made by your doctor or your guardian. So there are some places in the region still where women aren't able to make decisions for themselves. That, that's changed now, by the way. Um, in terms of in terms of the freedom of movement and everything else um, for women in Saudi Arabia and other parts of the region, there's been a lot of progress in the past couple of years. And I think everybody here would would attest to that. Um, but yeah, I again the whole purpose of NABTA is to do everything with the prioritization of privacy, autonomy, and convenience as much as possible, acknowledging that this even over affordability. In, in the GCC in particular is what women are really looking for. You know, you'll have um, members of uh, prominent families here who will have clinics closed for the entire afternoon, fertility clinics, so that they can visit and be seen, but not be seen, if you get what I mean. Um, so the privacy factor is really important. Interesting. If someone wanted to start a femtech company, what's an area in women's health and wellness you think still needs innovating? Oh, that's an interesting question. Gosh, there are so many, aren't there? Um, you can also um, give us a country <laughs> that you think needs more femtech innovation in. You know what? I think um, it's really important always to remember that technology at the end of the day is an enabler. Mm -hmm. And there are many, many aspects of women's healthcare that could be improved in a little bit significant ways. Um, and, and, it, and it varies completely country to country. Um, I think probably here in the, in, in the UAE, let's take the UAE, one of the biggest gaps is in postpartum support, um, helping women to understand what, um, so, so firstly, what, what good decision making looks like in terms of pregnancy and birth. C-section rates here are very high because C-sections earn doctors more money than um, vaginal deliveries and because they're more convenient. But you know, the World Health Organization recommends C-section rates of 15%, and the average in the UAE is 50%, up to 80% in some private hospitals. Um, and that has a whole load of knock-on effects. For the mother, from a recovery perspective, you know, you go from like a week, two weeks, to six weeks, um, in terms of uh, the risk associated with future deliveries, if you have a particularly thin scar or you know, stretch scarring area, in terms of the gut microbiome of the infant. So there are three key factors that affect 
the gut microbiome development of a baby in its first year of life, the number one is vaginal delivery. Vaginal delivery populates the baby's gut microbiome with lots and lots and lots of good bacteria. If it doesn't happen, that population doesn't happen. Um, the second thing that adversely affects the microbiome is if, if the mother intrapartum is on antibiotics. So if she's on antibiotics while she's giving birth. And then the third thing is whether the baby is breastfed or not and exclusively breastfed for the first four to six months of life, um, which, which obviously positively impacts the microbiome development. So helping women to understand how their birth preferences impact their own and their baby's health, and then putting into place a, a really like structured um, support mechanism that, that prioritizes the mother almost over anybody else in the first trimester or the fourth trimester, the first trimester, postpartum so um you know what does perineal recovery look like how can you start exercising again what do good dietary decisions look like how do you birth proof a marriage um how do you make the addition of a family member easier for the family in general what are the critical checks that you need to look for what does an infection feel like again episiotomy rates are really high here in some facilities over 80 percent so there's a huge um a very high prevalence of secondary and tertiary tears and also of infections. So, yeah, I mean, there are there are a dozen different small things that companies could do here to support women postpartum um, that would make a big difference. And for every country, there are overlaps and there are also things individually that would, would make a bit would make a big difference. Yeah. Somewhere like Kenya, um, there's a very high rate of maternal death. Um, and also infant deaths, largely due to the lack of proper antenatal care. So in Kenya, maybe the focus should be more on educating women in the run-up to falling pregnant and then holding their hands and providing them with remote care during pregnancy itself. There's two examples. Yeah, I, absolutely. Both of them absolutely need innovating. And I love how you're talking about like, based on the market that you're in, it depends, right? So, and what do you think that the femtech industry as a, as a whole needs the most right now in order to be successful? Uh, <laughs> probably more capital mm -hmm. um, is, is the number one thing. Um, I do think, I do think creating something of a global movement is really important. Mm. The perception of us folk over here um, in the middle of the desert is that a lot of the a lot of the um, a lot of the kind of chatter in the femtech space is very is very Western oriented. So very much happening in the U.S., very much happening in Europe, and um, I think creating a, a a more global and inclusive movement that has you know voices from all over the world. And, and, and starting to actively invest in and support um, companies that are building things in, in, in for the niches and, and for the underserved and for the untapped is the way that, is the way that women's health and the, um, the changes within the sector will really start to gather pace. Mm -hmm. So capital and more inclusivity in terms of a global footprint. I love it. Sophie, you are amazing. You are literally the shining star <laughs> over there for Femtech. And we thank you for all your efforts. And uh, this is a great conversation. Thanks so much for your input today.
Thank you for having me, Brittany. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to my interview with Sophie Smith, co-founder and CEO of NAPTA Health. If you want to learn more about NAPTA Health, visit naptahealth.com. And if you're building a femtech company, please do consider the possibilities of innovating for women in emerging markets and not just the American lady. All right, Fem fans, please join our Femtech Focus virtual community and subscribe to our newsletter at femtechfocus.org. In our virtual community, you can become a Fem Pro member for only $10 a month and get access to a library of recorded Femtech content and free tickets to our Femtech Fundamentals events, which are biweekly workshops that help founders build, launch, and succeed. We have Monday night listening parties. We have a monthly book club. We also have weekly office hours on Clubhouse. There's a lot going on, so definitely become a member at femtechfocus.org so you can stay up to date. While there, also please consider setting up a recurring donation at Femtech Focus since we are a 501c3 nonprofit and rely on your donations to operate. Okay, Fem fans, until next time, keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness. Thank you.